So as we've been making our way through Romans 8, uh, one of the things that is abundantly clear, really the thrust of Romans 8, is God's incredible grace towards us, God's unmerited grace to us. God has gone all in to redeem us and to restore us and to restore his creation. He sends Jesus to be a sacrifice for our sin. And Jesus comes and he is an atonement. He pays that debt for us. And if we are in Christ, we are also in the Spirit and that the Spirit is transforming us and renewing us. And by the power of the Spirit, one day we will be resurrected to new life and have new bodies. And the truth is, is that this is what God has done. It's not us. It's not our performance. It's not our following a set of rules. Apart from the grace of God, this is impossible. Apart from the grace of God, apart from Christ, we're utterly and hopelessly broken and sinful. But God has lavished, lavished his grace. He's poured it out. He's been abundant in his grace towards us so that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We're set free by the Spirit, and in the Spirit we have life. This is the truth of Romans 8. This is what we have been reflecting on these past weeks. And then when we get to verse 12, the Apostle Paul hits us with a so then. This is a transition that signals for us that he is going to start talking about the implications of the incredible grace of God. Here is what it means for us. If you are in Christ, if you have received this incredible grace, if you are in the Spirit, here is what this means for you. Here are the implications for your salvation in Christ, how you are to live, how are you to see yourself in light of this grace. So this, you see, this incredible salvation that we've experienced, it clarifies things for us. It clarifies our identity. It clarifies our allegiance. It clarifies how we are to live. It makes sense in all of the chaos and all the voices and all the things that are come crashing in and saying, hey, this is who you are and this is what you should do and this is how you should live your life. The grace of God cuts through that and clarifies it all for us. So then is an important word for us here. So then is a beautiful uh, light for us. And here is the essence of verses 12 through 16. Here's what the Apostle Paul is going to wrap up for us and uh, package for us in light of the grace of God. He, he's going to tell us, hey, this is where your allegiance belongs in light of the grace of God and in light of your identity. So, so we want to put this a little bit more succinctly. We can say this, I know who I owe because I know who I am. I know who I owe because I know who I am. So I know who I owe. I wonder how many of you in here are old enough to remember when Kevin Costner was like the biggest movie star in the world? A few of you. (laughs) Makes me feel really old. The late 80s and early 90s, Kevin Costner was like the biggest movie star. He was the biggest thing going. He had a, a string of hits. Movies like The Untouchables and Bull Durham and Field of Dreams and probably his most successful movie, Dances with Wolves. But growing up, here was my favorite Kevin Costner movie, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Anybody with me on this? I mean, this was Kevin Costner at his cheesy best. But it's a great movie, great action, great humor, great soundtrack from Brian Adams. I mean, it had it all. And so if, if you're familiar with this movie, and if, even if you're, you're not, here's, here's a little summation. You'll, you'll remember this well. 
So at the beginning of the movie, we're, we're actually in the Middle East and Robin is in prison. He's been part of the Crusades and he's been captured. But while escaping, he saves the life of a man named Azim, who is a Muslim fighter and played by the great Morgan Freeman. And so in response to this rescuing of his life, Azim pledges himself to Robin, so much so that he's actually willing to travel to England with him, where if you're anything but pasty white, you're going to stand out. And so Azim pledges his life, gives his life to Robin, and he becomes a faithful fighter and a friend and one of Robin's most trusted advisors. And then when we get to the end in the climactic battle scene, Azim gets up and gives this incredible speech because if you have Morgan Freeman in a movie, you got to give him a speech, right? And so he gives this speech where he says, hey, I have pledged my loyalty and given my allegiance to Robin Hood, and I'm calling all of you to do the same. He's like saying, I fight for freedom, Robin fights for freedom, and so if you want to fight for freedom, fight with us. And so not only has he given his own allegiance, he's called others to allegiance to Robin as well. And I think it is not hard for us to see the beauty and the power of this dynamic. A great act of salvation births allegiance in another. And we recognize this in small ways throughout our lives. I mean, there are people who have done great kindness to you, have done you favors, where then in turn you feel like, hey, I should do something for them. I'm in their debt. I feel a sense of loyalty and allegiance to them. But the greater the act of kindness, the greater our sense of allegiance and loyalty, the greater that allegiance becomes. If the act of kindness is something small like doing a favor, then maybe we'll just say, hey, I'm going to return the favor. But if the act of kindness, it rises to the level of salvation and rescue, life-saving, then our loyalty and our allegiance takes on a whole new level. It takes on a zeem level. It's, it's not just that I'm going to return a favor of kindness in turn. Rather, my identity has been altered. I now belong to you because of the kindness you have shown me. This is the dynamic Paul is highlighting in verses 12 and 13. He writes, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, of the body, you will live. So look, we're debtors. We're all debtors to some degree. Our loyalty and allegiance certainly belongs somewhere and is held somewhere, but it's not to the flesh. It's not to the flesh. But here's what the challenge we all face is. How often does the flesh make demands on our loyalty? How often is the flesh, and by the flesh we're talking about sinful, broken human nature and the world sort of around us, how often does the flesh make demands and say, you owe me? How often does the flesh call for your allegiance? Make no mistake, the flesh will demand your loyalty. It, it will lie to you to get you to believe you owe it something that you owe your loyalty to it. It will say things like, look where I've got you. Look at the success that I've brought you. Look at the status that I brought you. Look at the comfort that I brought you. Look at the relationships that I've brought you. You owe me. And how often do we say things like this? I just had to do fill in the blank. 
or I needed to do fill in the blank. In those moments, what you're saying is, is that my flesh has my loyalty. The flesh has my, my loyalty because I had to do that. You are under the debt. You are under the allegiance of your flesh. How often do you tell yourself, if I don't do fill in the blank, something bad is going to happen? That is the flesh telling you that you owe it loyalty. And I wonder also in this season, and in this time of trial, because this is when typically our flesh runs rampant, is when there's suffering and there's pain and there's trial. How often does your flesh say, hey, if you want to get through this, if you want to endure this, if you want to experience comfort in this, you need to follow me. You need to give into your fear. You need to give into those lusting and that craving for comfort. You need to follow my lead and I'll get you through this. I'll get you comfort and control. I'll get you peace. I'll, I'll, I'll relieve you of anxiety and worry. Over and over and over again, the flesh is making demands. The flesh is calling us to be loyal to it. It, it, it wants us to think that we are in its debt, that we need it to survive. We need it if we're going to have peace, if we're going to have comfort, if we're going to have joy. And loyalty to the flesh, look, it comes so easy to us because we're born into sin. We're born into a disposition where we're in rebellion towards God. We're born into a disposition where we live for our flesh and we're controlled by our flesh. And so it's very natural for us to believe and to follow loyalty and allegiance to the flesh. But then we have to ask this question. Then we have to be brutally honest and look this situation in the eye and ask, do we really owe the flesh? Does the flesh really deserve our allegiance and our loyalty? What has the flesh really done for us? Has it given you the things it has promised? Has it provided the things that it claims it can provide? Maybe on the surface it seems that way, but I wonder, has the flesh brought real life and freedom to you? Has your pride and your selfishness and your pursuit of comfort and control, has your fear and your lust and your greed and your anger and your self-righteousness, has your self-centered discipline ever brought freedom from sin, ever brought freedom from condemnation? Has it removed condemnation? Has it removed guilt? Has it made you a more faith-filled, joy-filled, peace-filled, loving, gracious, merciful person? Has the flesh welled up in you worship and a sense of awe and wonder at the beauty of God and the majesty of Christ? Has it humbled you before him? Oh, does the flesh lead you to life? Will the flesh one day overcome your death? And will your flesh one day renew you and transform your bodies? No, absolutely not. This is why the Apostle Paul makes it abundantly clear. So then, we're not debtors to the flesh. The flesh only brings dysfunction and conflict. It only brings slavery to sin. You don't owe your flesh anything. 
Hear me this morning. You don't owe your flesh anything. To whatever degree you've bought the lie before, you do not owe your flesh anything. In fact, as verse 13 tells us, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, meaning the end result of loyalty to the flesh is death and judgment. Look, the flesh lies to you. It seeks to enslave you. It wants to put you in this spiritual Stockholm syndrome where it has you imprisoned but makes you loyal to it. And Paul says, we're not debtors to the flesh. We do not owe the flesh. But the problem, the challenge, the struggle is we cannot set ourselves free from the flesh through our own flesh. We cannot set ourselves free from the flesh through our own effort. Freedom from slavery doesn't come through self-effort. Freedom from slavery and rescue don't come through our own religious deeds or our own good works or trying to be more moral and righteous people. Trying to set yourself free from the flesh through your flesh is a little bit like pouring gasoline on a fire because you think, well, liquid will put out fire. Yes, we need to be righteous. Yes, we need righteousness. Yes, we need renewal. But we misunderstand when we think the path to that is through our flesh. It's not. And if we try to beat our flesh and overcome our flesh through our flesh, what happens when you pour gas on a fire just makes it worse. We need, as Paul points out, the Spirit. We put to death the deeds of the body. That means the sinful deeds that we commit in our bodies. We put them to death. How? By the Spirit. We need the Spirit. And this is why the gospel is so good news for us. This is why the gospel holds out for us something greater than our flesh. Jesus not only paid for your sin, freeing you from condemnation, he not only broke sin's power, freeing you from its corruption, he's given you the spirit by which you can put to de death the flesh. You can put to death sin. You can say to sin, I don't owe you anymore. Flesh, you are not my master. I am not in allegiance to you. I don't owe you anything. And you can walk away and walk in freedom and walk in life because the spirit is renewing you and empowers you. Look, in light of what God has done, in light of the power that we have in the Spirit, we know who we owe. If you are in Jesus Christ, you know who you owe. You owe the one who laid down his life for you, the one who has freed you from condemnation and freed you from the law of sin and death. You owe the one who gave you the Spirit to renew you and empower you. You don't owe your flesh. You don't owe your sin. You don't owe your fear. You don't owe your lust or your greed. No, you owe Jesus. And when you owe Jesus, oh, that leads to life. When you give your allegiance to Jesus, that leads to freedom. So we know who we owe. I know who I owe. And I know who I owe because I know who I am. To be in Christ, to be in the Spirit, says something about your identity. As Paul writes in verses 14 through 16, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children, <clears throat> excuse me, children of God. 
I wonder, when you think of God saving you, when you think of God rescuing and redeeming, giving his spirit, what type of relationship do you suppose that creates? When God saves you and rescues you, what kind of relationship are you now in with God? Look, God is the sovereign creator and ruler of everything. We don't ever forget that. Jesus is the resurrected and reigning king, standing with all authority and power on heaven and on earth. We recognize the supreme authority of God. God is above all things. He is highly exalted. We take a very, very large view of God here at First City Church. But recognize this. While we are servants of the living God, while we are servants of Christ, and that absolutely defines our identity, we're submitted to him, we're humbled before him. That is our identity. More than the identity of servant, the identity you carry, the primary relationship between you and God is father and child. We're children. The primary relationship we have with God is children. When he saves us through Jesus Christ, he brings us into his family. He is our father. And that means he loves you as a son and as a daughter. Look, God does not save us and set us free from sin and death just to bait and switch us. I think sometimes we sort of live this way. We functionally can live this way. We, we can act as if God sort of bait and switched us to once again fear judgment. He doesn't save us and then lock us into this performance mindset. Look, I forgave you, now do better with your second chance. He, he doesn't have a distant, indifferent business relationship with you. Look, I saved you, but now you work for me and let's get it done. No, this is not the kind of relationship God builds because that's substituting one form of the flesh for another. God is not in the practice of substituting one form of your flesh for another. It's not as if God takes your life before Christ and all that involves. So all of your performing through your own effort and all of your fear of failure and all your self-centered comfort and control and all your attempt to create an identity. It's not like he takes all of that, sprinkles some Jesus on it and says, now take all of that and just focus it on Christ. Oh, you know what that is? That, that on the surface may seem like it's different, but that's just rearranging the furniture and pretending like you did a remodel. It, it's moving some things around and acting like things are different. No. For, for us to sort of say, hey, I take my performance mentality and I take my fear of judgment and I take my... Um, pursuit of trying to please God and everybody else, and I put some Jesus talk on it, as if that's spiritual? No, that's just, uh, that's the same thing on the surface with no change in the heart. God is not in the business of just rearranging the furniture. He is doing a complete and total remodel and re renovation of your heart. And so when he saves us through Jesus Christ, he doesn't rearrange the furniture. He transforms. He transforms completely your relationship with him, and he transforms completely the motivation for how you live and why you live and why you do what you do. When he saves you, he brings you near, and he says, my son, my daughter, I love you. You're mine. 
I belong, you belong to me. The spirit we receive is the spirit of adoption. The spirit that brings us into the family of God, the spirit that, said, that, as Paul says here, confirms in our spirit, we are sons and daughters, we're loved, we're embraced, we're cared for, we're free, we're empowered, and we're accepted in the family, not as just someone who's like, yeah, they're in the family, but you know, they're, they're kind of the person over in the corner, we don't really pay attention to them, they're kind of weird. No, you're brought into the family, you're brought near, and you're cherished. As Eric said earlier, delighted in, God looks on you with love and affection, and he's for you, and he has spared no expense to save you and redeem you and transform you. This is who we are. Why do we owe Christ? Well, because this is who we are. We're children. We know what God has done on our behalf. We know he has welcomed us. We know we are his children. And when we know that, we have confidence. And what confidence brings is freedom. It brings freedom. Look, I've, I've used this analogy before, but I think it's, it's worth repeating. When you think of the gospel, we can sort of frame this out into two rooms. One room is a courtroom where God is a judge. And we stand before him guilty but because of Christ and what Christ has done, because Christ has paid our debt and we now have his righteousness, God declares to us, not guilty. But it doesn't stop there. God the judge takes off his robe, steps down from his bench, puts his arm around you and, and embraces you with a hug and says, come on in to the family room and now experience me as father, live with me as a child, know love and closeness and intimacy and fellowship. Here's the problem. So many of us stay in the courtroom and we're unsure of the verdict and we never leave. We never allow the Lord to bring us into fellowship. Look, God didn't save you just to say, hey, you're not guilty, carry on. No, he saved you to bring you into the family room. And so when we stay in the courtroom and when we're uncertain about the verdict and we never move to know God as Father, we start to live with a lot of fear and a lot of performance. And look, fear will cause us to run back to the flesh every time. If we fear, we, we will run to grab control and we will self-protect and we will run to our self-made comforts. In fear, we keep playing around with our sin and giving into our flesh because we can't trust God. Fear will lead us to perform and to carry around guilt and wear ourselves out trying to prove ourselves to God and to others. Why is it that too often Christians, at the first moment of suffering and trial, start get thrown into this confusion and fear and start to question whether or not God loves us or likes us or why do we immediately run to say is God punishing me or has God left me or is God neglecting me why are we so quick to run to that because we lose sight of who we are we've lost sight of the fact that it is a spirit of adoption not a spirit of slavery that we have Friends, church, fear drives us to flesh. Fear will bring us back under that allegiance to the flesh. 
but when we know who we are in Christ, when we have confidence, when we are secure in God's love for us, when we know who we are and we know the spirit of adoption that lives in us, when we are experiencing the good of the spirit confirming to us we're sons and daughters of God, we can have confidence, we can have freedom, we can have rest, we can have joy. We worship and we praise, we live our lives for his glory, we live our lives with righteousness because we know he's worth it. We know he's redeemed us and he's rescued us from sin. And then also, here's, here's what happens when pain and suffering hit, because they're going to hit. What do we do? We cry, Abba, Father. We cry, Daddy, save me. Father, save me. God, I'm coming to you. I'm pouring my heart out. I'm, I'm, I'm running. Rescue me. Save me. I trust you. I'm, I'm throwing myself on your mercy and your grace and your kindness. Rather than running from God, we run to God. This word Abba, translated father, is an intimate word. It's a word that a child uses when addressing their daddy. This is the word Jesus used to address his heavenly father. This speaks to the intimacy Christ had with his father. And what does he do? He invites us into that relationship. He teaches us this word and he says, I call him Abba, you call him Abba. I call him father, you call him father. The relationship that I have with him, now I invite you into that and you share that. This is how much God loves you. This is how near he is to you. This is how he wants you to know him. Not fearfully, not running away from him, not scared that he's gonna strike you down, not trying to perform for him so that we can be in his good graces. No, to know him to rest in him, to trust him, to have confidence in him, to love him, and to live for him. God, the almighty, sovereign, powerful creator, the ruler, the judge, the one who, when he descended on a mountain, set it on fire, the one who flooded this entire world, the one who spoke in this and everything we know is in existence, that great, incredible God says, hey, call me dad. This is who we are, church. And if we know who we are, then we know who we owe. We are giving our loyalty somewhere. We're debtors to someone or something. The question is who or what. We are either free in Christ or we're enslaved to something else. That, that's what we have to come to grips with. We're either free in Christ or we're enslaved to something else. If you have, haven't push your faith in Christ this morning. If you're not trusting Christ for your salvation, if you don't know God, his father, understand that the gospel is offered to you this morning. You can know forgiveness. You can know the freedom from sin and death that comes through Jesus Christ. You can be in Christ, in the spirit. You can know God as father, even this morning. If you do belong to Jesus, I want to encourage you, know who you are so you know who you owe. See the great love God has for you, that he is your father, that you are his son, his daughter, and live by the spirits. You don't owe the flesh anything. Let us live for our God, the one who loves us, the one who has set us free and is setting us free. In the midst of this trying season, in the midst of all the other junk we got going on in our lives, all the challenges we face, 
we can know who we are and who we owe. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.